Oh, God is so good. Yes, thank you guys for leading up that prayer and just going forward. We just love this nation, and we're so thankful uh, that we get to live here. Um, so I'm going to uh, continue. If you don't know, we're in the middle of a series on the Spirit, the Spirit series. And uh, it's actually been a while since I spoke. It's been about a month since I spoke last, I suppose. Um, but it's a continuation. So we're, today we're talking about the Spirit and the New Covenant um, because we're trying to provide a framework to understanding the New Testament. And believe it or not, the, the Holy Spirit's a crucial part of New Testament theology, even though, in my opinion, he kind of gets short-shrifted and left in the periphery. So we give lip service to the Holy Spirit, but often we kind of ignore him, unfortunately, when it comes to practical uh, stuff. And if you remember last time, I don't expect you to, but I actually talked about three urgencies I had. And the last time I kind of emphasized the third one, but I'm going back to number one today. And this is the first urgency I have that I want to address in this series um, because it's so crucial. And, it, and it, I essentially already just said it, but Christian theology in general, I'm talking about from the parish, but I'm also talking about like even uh, scholarship, has really neglected the role, the central and crucial role of the Holy Spirit. He, he kind of gets ignored. It's really, it's really it's kind of sad in a lot of ways because he's such an important part of our understanding the Bible and the, and the New Covenant. And that's what we're going to show you today, that he's an integral part of the New Covenant. Okay, And so it's really important that we have this understanding so that we get what the New Covenant's all about. And, and my point is, is that the Spirit lies at the heart of everything in New Testament theology and our experience of God. So... I'm kind of just going over this quick, but last time I just showed four crucial things that are a part of our faith that the, that the Holy Spirit plays a crucial part of, and I'm going to go in more detail today. If you were here last time, I kind of just skimmed over and said, oh, we'll address that someday, and today I'm going to just start going for it because um, these things are so important. And so the first is that the Spirit is the key to the eschatological framework. Ooh, big word. Now, if you guys were, how many of you were actually here during the Kingdom of God series? You guys all know what eschatology is <laughs> by now. But for those of you who weren't here, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today for the sake of re refreshing our memories, but also for the sake of people who weren't here uh, in the Kingdom of God series. But I'm only going to go over it briefly but the point is that that is a crucial factor to understanding the whole New Testament. The framework, the eschatological framework that the early church had is so crucial to understanding all of the writers of the New Testament. And that's why it's so important to understand that. Also, the Spirit is the key to the experience dimension of salvation, which is the central issue of the New Testament. Salvation in Christ. Okay, and the Spirit plays such a crucial role in salvation. The Spirit is also the key to what it means for us to become the people of God, which is the central goal to, that God has is to create a people for his name. And that was the whole purpose of the children of Israel, that he had a people for his name. And now as the new covenant believers, we are part of that people by the Spirit. So, it's, so these three things, I'm going to more or less just focus on the first one, but I wanna, I, I'm showing you all three because they're all related to each other. You'll see that salvation, for instance, understanding salvation in terms of this eschatological framework is so crucial to understanding what salvation is. It's way more than just the forgiveness of sins. Now, don't get me wrong. Forgiveness of sins is super crucial, right? It, that's awesome. But it's way bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. And it's, it's the empowerment for life, living the life of the kingdom now in the present tense. And so if you were part of the Kingdom of God series or heard some of it, uh, you, would, you would know what I'm talking about. But this is what I want to focus on today, okay? Today's message, just so you know where I'm going with this, is to connect the Old Testament story of the people of God to the prophetic promises of the New Covenant. Because when you understand, like, have a grid for where the people, uh, the early church were at, the Jewish expectations, and what they had because of the, all the Old Testament promises, that gives us an understanding and framework to, for, for our entire faith, really. Okay, so I'm going to, I want to connect those promises to the narrative of the Old Testament today. 
If you guys were here, the second message in this series, I gave a whole message. How many of you remember the message on the history of the presence of God? The, the, do you guys remember that? Okay. <laughs> I'm giving a brief review of that, but what I want to do is connect that to the specific new covenant promises throughout the Old Testament so we understand how crucial the Spirit is in all of this. Okay? Um, and then to show how the Holy Spirit was an essential part of Israel's promised future, okay, and how he plays an integral role in fulfilling the promised new covenant. So first, before I go into the history, I need to say something about this eschatological framework. That's a fancy pants word, I realize. But like I said, if you're here for the Kingdom of God series, that's the essential framework that all the early church had. And so when you understand that framework, it gives you a grid for understanding the whole New Testament. And some mysterious scriptures that don't really make sense make a whole bunch of sense when you have that as an undergrid for when you're reading the New Testament. Um, And so what is eschatology? Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, It's basically a long word with a lot of syllables that essentially just means it has to do with the time of the end, the end times. The eschaton meant the end, capital E, end, okay? So the study of the end times is eschatology. Now, really, it refers to Jewish, first of all, to Jewish expectations that God would bring a dramatic end to the present age, through his Messiah. This is what they are all expecting, that God would come, end history, the, through the Messiah, who would be the ultimate man of the Spirit, uh, from different prophetic words like Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, Isaiah 42, verse 1, uh, Isaiah 61, that he would be the ultimate man of the Spirit and come and usher in the new age, which was the kingdom of God. This is what they're all waiting for. So when John the Baptist came on the scene and said, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, they were like, oh my goodness, they all knew what they meant. That meant that God was coming and bringing an end to history through his Messiah, bringing in the brand new age, which was called the kingdom of God. That's why when Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, he was saying, I'm him. I'm the guy you've been waiting for, and I'm ushering in this new age of the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, this, so you guys recognize this language, this age, this present age, and the age to come. Paul used that a lot. Jesus used that a lot. Because they believed this age was evil. It was Satan's age, that there was demonic oppression, sickness, disease, sin. All the stuff that we know and we experience. So they considered it Satan's age. Then God would come, bring an end to this present evil age, usher in the kingdom of God, and then it would be the age to come, okay? Now, the two things, the two things that signaled the kingdom of God was here was the resurrection of the dead and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two signs that God's kingdom, the age to come, was here, okay? So those would be the sure signs that God's kingdom was here. Now, just uh, you guys might recognize this if you're here previously, but just to give you just a picture of what I'm talking about, this two-age idea, because this was the common idea that the Jewish people had before Jesus came. This was their common idea, that like I already said, this age we currently lived in was Satan's age. There was all this evil, negative stuff, and importantly, it was the age of the, at the time, the quenched Holy Spirit. It was called the time of the quenched spirit. I'm going to get into this a little more later. But that's why the spirit, when he came back, was such a big deal. Because in their minds, he left. In Ezekiel 10, he left. The glory departed. And so that's why there's no books in the Bible from Malachi to John the Baptist, because there was no Holy Spirit in the land. There was no prophets, because the prophets spoke through the Holy Spirit. And so they believed there was a time of the quench spirit. So when the Spirit came back, it was a huge deal, because they knew when he came back, all these prophetic promises that I'm going to talk about in a minute were being fulfilled. The age to come, like I already said, they, they termed that the kingdom of God, the rule of God. Okay, so this was especially the overthrow of Satan, 
That's why Jesus came and started casting out demons. It was a sign that the overthrow of Satan had begun. That's why he says in Matthew 12, If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the sign, right? The Holy Spirit, demons are being cast out. The overthrow of Satan has begun. But also righteousness, goodness, healing, all that stuff. The resurrection of the dead is a huge sign to them that the kingdom was here. So Christ's resurrection, that's why it is such a big deal. He's the first fruits, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. His resurrection was the first fruits. And now we're awaiting the final resurrection of our bodies. That's when the final consummation of the kingdom would come, when he overthrew death completely at his second coming and we were raised. But Paul says... He was the first fruit. So that's a sign to them that the kingdom is already here because resurrection already happened. But secondly, above all else, it'd be evidenced by the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it was considered the age of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came back, that was the sign. Now, the reason I'm, go I'm going to deal to uh, detail all this because this is so important to understand even salvation, what that means and what the new covenant means and all of that. Okay, so, and also, I believe that the one thing, one of the things for sure that distances us from the early church is this. More than any other, is there, we do not have the same eschatological perspective they had. There was such an urgency and an understanding that God's kingdom came in and the implications of that were huge to them were so huge that they were, that's, that was their motivation. The kingdom's here. My goodness, look at all these hundreds of years we've been waiting for this. And Jesus came, the resurrection came, the spirit came. Now he's going to come back any minute. So we got to preach the kingdom of God to everybody so that everybody can be included in all these promises that are being fulfilled right now. But we don't even really think that way anymore. Like, um, it was just presupposition to them that they had these understandings and these ideas of what that looked like. So ultimately, the first Christians believed that the fulfillment of God's Old Testament covenant promises about the last days, you guys recognize that language, there's so many prophetic words, in the last days, in the last days, in the last days. They believed that began with Christ and the Holy Spirit. So, their view is that they were already living in the age to come. They were already God's end time people living the life of the future, living the life of the kingdom of heaven now in the present evil age. Okay? So they were already those people. They were already God's quote-unquote eschatological people because they had the spirit. The age of the spirit began with them. They're, they're a colony of heaven. Citizens of heaven, Paul says in Philippians 3.10. You guys are citizens of heaven in this present evil age. What does that mean? That's where our home is. That's because we're living heaven now. That's what we're supposed to be doing by the Spirit. The life of the Spirit. Okay? So they are already living the beginning of the end, but they still awaited the final consummation. In other words, the first coming of Christ came, death and resurrection of Christ. Now they're waiting between the times we still are, for the second coming of Christ. So, so they had this already we're in this age, but not yet we're in this age. There's still, we're, we're, we're living the age to come in the present evil age. Still, okay? But we're supposed to trumpet the fact that the kingdom is here. The fact that heaven broke in, that we're living as citizens from heaven, and asking, telling people to join the party. That's our job description. Hey, guys, good news. The kingdom's here. Heaven now on earth, right? The book I just talked about, When Heaven Invades Earth. It's a good book. You should get it if you feel glory on it. Good book, Bill Johnson. Anyway, it's a, it's a classic now, really. Sorry. But, so... In other words, the future already began, not yet had it been completely fulfilled. And that's going to happen when Christ comes. You read this in 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies will be raised at that time. Then death gets its final blow. And then Paul taunts death and he says, death, where's your sting? Right? We have victory over death. That's when the final thing is going to happen. 
So they're already not yet perspective conditioned everything about them. Everything. Everything. The way they lived. The way they thought. The way they understood Christ. The way they understood their place in this world was all conditioned by these ideas. That's why I spent 11 sermons on this in the Kingdom of God series. Because it's so important, right? It's, it's like that's just what they thought. That was their presuppositions. And it makes a lot of scriptures make a lot of sense. So I, I, I'm going to th- show you this visually for you visual people. So what happened at the fall? Adam and Eve sinned. They were in the presence of God unhindered. They fell. They got banished from the presence of God. Sin came in. Sickness came in. Satan ruled and reigned. And that's why it became this age, this present evil age, is the age of sin, the age of Satan. Then what happened? They were waiting for all these promises to be fulfilled when the Messiah would come. And that happened when Jesus came. That's why he said, hey, guys, all these promises you've been waiting for. He says this in Luke 4, and he, he quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me, for he's anointed me to preach good news to the uh, poor, and on and on and on. And he says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. So we know that all these promises they're waiting for was fulfilled in Christ. But at the same time, Jesus also made it clear that the kingdom is future. Right? He says, he, there's, and, and if you remember from the series, I gave a whole sermon on showing that he says the kingdom is now present tense and the kingdom is future. And I gave a whole message on that. Okay? Reconciling the fact that the kingdom came, but yet it's still future. And that's why they got this idea. They really got it from Jesus. That we're living between the times. That, yeah, the kingdom's broken in, but it's not yet fulfilled completely. So then you get this language like first fruits. Or, or, or the Holy Spirit is the first fruits, or the seal guaranteeing what's to come. Okay? Because the fullness, the full harvest is coming at the second coming. But, you, but we're experiencing the first fruits now in the present tense. So we're living in the last days. They, that's what, <laughs> all those prophetic words about the last days, they believe we're in it now. But what changed, you can see from the one, God's going to bring a dramatic, climactic end to history, and it's going to happen right then and there on the day of the Lord. That changed into this long eschaton, so to speak. The day of the Lord's now been 2,000 years. <laughs> no one expected that. We're still living in between the times. But then at the second coming of Christ, all of the finalization of those promises will be fulfilled, and that'll be the final kingdom of God or the age of the Spirit. So, this already not yet perspective about the end times influenced their entire theological outlook. And that's why the Kingdom of God series was really building a foundation um, and, is, and is still a foundation, and you'll see why it's so crucial in this particular series. That, but, but anyway, how they thought and talked about Christ, salvation, we're going to be talking about that. It's all understood in this. The church, ethics, the present, the future, everything. And you see this language throughout the... This is just one example in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Paul says this. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. You see that? They're like, hey, the ends of the ages have come upon us. We're them. We're the eschatological people living that end time future stuff now by the Spirit. And then you see scriptures like this. This is just one example, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Just look at this past tense future always throughout the New Testament. It says, and you were, right, past tense already, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed you were marked with him a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Notice that. Future not yet. It's still to come. But because the Spirit came, that means it's guaranteed. And it says, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, the praise of his glory, talking about our resurrection. But what I want to point out is, notice it says promised Holy Spirit. What promises promises is he referring to? I'm gonna, and that's what I'm going to spend the rest of this time talking about. But what I wanted to show you is because I realize this is like a fire hydrant, especially if those of you who weren't here for the Kingdom of God series, um, 
This is just uh, the last message I gave on this series really summarizes all of this. I spent like a whole message just giving you all of this. And so if you're interested, that was on March 12th, the age of the kingdom has dawned. That's a summary of the whole series. If you want to get more of like, if you're like, what are you talking about? Feel free to go for it. There's the link right there. You can go on iTunes or our website. But my question is, what promises is he referring to? And he says the promised Holy Spirit. How are they related to the early church's eschatological or end time perspective? And I want to show you that today. So quick, briefly, What I want to do is link all of this to the history, the narrative of the Old Testament, okay? And show you throughout the Old Testament how all of these promises were given and why they came to this idea, right? What it meant and the significance that the Holy Spirit came back, okay? It's a big deal. So the history and the prophetic promises of the New Covenant, Now, if you weren't here, I gave that message on April 10th. I spent a whole message on this history. I'm giving you a brief uh, thing on this again, just to just to for you who weren't here to refresh your memory. So, what I talked about on April 10th was the fact that the presence of God, the presence of God, is crucial to both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, it serves the book and the Bible. If you think about it, Genesis 2 and 3 was all about humans, Adam and Eve, and the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. How does the Bible end Revelation 21 and 22, the restoration of Eden, humans back in the presence of God unhindered? Okay? Beginning and end. But, like I already alluded to, Adam and Eve enjoyed this fellowship, the presence of God unhindered. That's what it's all about, walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Now, it's clear when they sin, they're driven from the garden, and they're banished from the presence of God. Horrible, right? That was why it was so tragic when sin came in. They're no longer enjoying that unhindered fellowship in the presence of God. Now, fast forward to the book of Exodus, okay? The heart of the book of Exodus is the renewing of God's presence on earth. You think about the significance of that. The renewing of God's presence on earth through a slave people who he's redeemed. Okay, that's, that's the crux of the book of Exodus. And if you're interested, I go over all that last time, April 10th message. But what I want to say today is the returning of God's presence is the structural key of the book, which culminates in God's glory descending on the tabernacle. The very, one of the very last verses in Exodus, Exodus 40, 34 to 35. This is what it says. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That was so significant. Because from that point on, they could leave Sinai because they became the people of the presence. That's what the the old covenant was all about. You read in Exodus 19, he says, I want to make a people for my name. I want you to be my people, a people among whom I dwell on earth. Okay? So then they agree to the covenant. Then he gives them crazy instructions for crazy, I mean, long in detailed instructions about this tabernacle. (laughs) Then the debacle in chapter 32 where they worship the golden calf. And God says, okay, that's it. My presence isn't going with you guys. It's all about the presence. Then Moses intercedes. says, God, if your presence isn't going with us, don't go with us. That's what it's all about. Because how will the nations know that we're your people unless your presence is with us? Okay? So anyway, then they construct the temple and this is how it ends. So they become a people of the presence of God. Okay? And so Yahweh, God, dwells in their midst. And this is symbolized by that cloud, you know, of, of fire, and, uh, and that's right after the next verse. The cloud of fire at night, uh, the uh, cloud by day, fire by night, the pillar. Anyway, then you come to Deuteronomy, and they're promised that there's going to be a place where the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. This is Deuteronomy 12, verse 11. In other words, there's going to be a permanent place of my presence He's promising this all the way back in Deuteronomy. That's the fifth book of the Bible. And they're led by the presence of God, symbolized by the pillar of cloud and fire. Finally, 
They come to that place of promise, and it's chosen, which is Jerusalem. Okay? So, Solomon builds the temple, and the exact, if you think, think of the language, I'm going to show you this, the exact same things happens all over again that happened in Exodus 40, verse 35. Oh, the last slide, sorry. 1 Kings 8, 11, it says, And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The exact same language, if you remember, what happened when he filled the tabernacle. God's presence permanently among them in Solomon's temple, in the most holy place. So the significance of this is Jerusalem and the temple are regularly described as the place where Yahweh chose his name to dwell. And the temple, this becomes important later. The place of God's dwelling became the focal point of Israel's existence and the promised land. Okay? We're going to show you in the New Testament why the temple imagery is so important. So because God chose to have his presence concentrate in the temple in Jerusalem, the tabernacle first and then the temple became the primary symbols of God's presence among his people. When people thought of the temple, they thought the place where God's presence is. I long for the temple of the Lord, the courts of the Lord. Because that's where his presence was. Now, I already mentioned this, but I'm, I'm pointing this out because I want to show you this later. This is why the temple imagery becomes so important in the New Testament. And I'm going to talk, show you this a little more later. But the important point in all of this is this. Far more than the law or any other identity markers that Israel experienced... It was God's presence with Israel that distinguished them as his people. The law was just given as evidence they're his people, but the whole point was that they're the people of his presence, the people among whom he dwelt, the people of the presence of God. So the people of Israel understood themselves to be the people of the divine presence. Okay? And the people among whom God chose to dwell on planet Earth. That was the significance. They're the people of God because the presence of God was in their midst. Now, this is why the great tragedy of Israel's fall and exile was the fact that the, they lost the presence of God. Because the temple was destroyed, there's no more longer any presence, and they lost their meaning and their identity. That's why it was so devastating. Okay, It was a huge devastation, and they didn't even believe it. When Jeremiah was like, guys, it's happening. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's happening. They are like, no, no, no. Not going to happen. No way that can happen, because that's where God dwells. That's not going to happen. Impossible. And even believe Jeremiah. He's like, guys, just wait. It's going to happen. You wait and see. And it did. Devastating. And it was because of their failure. That's what makes it so devastating. It was because of their failure that they lost the presence. Okay? And that's what makes this so devastating. The destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And if you don't know, that happens if you read the book of Kings. After Solomon, just read the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, you'll see exactly why they fell over and over and over again in idolatry and immorality, oppression of the poor were the three big things. And finally, God is like, guys, that's it, you're done. Because he warned them so many times and they kept in, the, kept in it. But there's good news. This is what I get. So the reason I showed you that is the significance of the new covenant because all of these promises deal with the fact that they lost the presence of God and then God promises the presence is coming back. Okay? That's what the new covenant was all about. So what I'm going to show you is the prophetic promises of the new covenant and the restoration of the presence of God. So, God knew. Now I want to just say this. We, I give you a brief history. God knew from the beginning... <laughs> that they were going to break the covenant. It's really fascinating because you can, you can actually see throughout how God gives these promises, but the new covenant's actually anticipated as early as Deuteronomy verse 30. Especially, just read verses 1 to 6. I'm going to show you verse 6. But it's really interesting because he actually says, guys, I'm giving you this covenant, you're going to fail, then you're going to go in exile, but then I'm going to restore you. 
So he already, back then, right after he gave the covenant, he's like, you guys are going to break this. Okay? But he promises, after they fail, that he would circumcise their hearts. So look at this. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and live. And again, in context, this is after they failed and are restored. Okay, so this promise then, this is significant, because if you read the book of Jeremiah, it's judgment, 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 judgment for all your failures. But every once in a while, there's these promises of restoration after the judgment, after the exile. So Jeremiah actually picks this up, this language, just before they went into exile. Now, this is the first time the new covenant is explicitly mentioned in the Bible. This is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now look at this. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. They, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. A little later, if you, if you know the chronology, Ezekiel comes into the picture. And if you're interested, I talk all about this previously in that message on April 10th. But Ezekiel, the important thing to say is Ezekiel's prophesying to Israel when they were already in captivity in Babylon. Okay? So, he, so this devastation already happened. Jerusalem fell, and eventually the destruction of the temple. And actually, Ezekiel, when he was 25, was taken with the first wave of captives. Then you see when he was 30, God gives him a vision, takes him back to the temple in Ezekiel 8, and he, says all this, he sees all this idolatry in the temple. And finally, in chapter 10, he talks about how the glory left the temple from the inner court to the outer court and departed. That's when the presence of the Lord left that point. The interesting thing is the whole book of Ezekiel is essentially about the restoration of the lost presence of God. Okay? So, the devastation is they were no longer distinguished by the presence of the living God in their midst when that happened. Now they're a captive people in Babylon. Now, interestingly, in the midst of this, Ezekiel picks up these promises from Deuteronomy, which was picked up by Jeremiah, and he expressly, now this is important, links this promise of a new covenant with a circumcised heart to the work of the Spirit of God, whom God will put in you. Okay, and I'm going to show you that right now. This is so important because this is what the new covenant is all about. And you'll see later that the New Testament church uh, understood it in light of these verses. So this is Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He says, I'll give you a new heart... And I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says in verse 27, And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you read in Ezekiel 37, we all know the, the story of the dry bones from Sunday school probably. You know the song that had hip bones connect? Anyway. This is that story. Look at how it, God says this in verse 13 and 14. He says, Then my people will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Resurrection. He says, I'll put my spirit in you and you will live. You see how important it is. The Holy Spirit was so crucial to their understanding of what that was going to look like when he restored them. Now what I want to say is that 
Above everything else, the fulfillment of the covenant of the promised spirit marked the return of the presence of God. And this is why the Holy Spirit became so crucial to the early church's understanding of where they were on God's timeline. Because when the spirit came back, they're like, man, all these promises of the new covenant are being fulfilled now. This is why John the Baptist, when he's prophesying about the Messiah, says, hey, guys, I'm not him because I'm just baptizing you in water. But when he comes, he's going to baptize you in what? Holy Spirit and fire. Because they knew that, oh, the kingdom's here. That means the kingdom's coming. The return of the presence of God. Now, what I want to say is this, because I was alluding to the temple a bit earlier, and I'm going to show you again, but... Ezekiel also prophesies the prophetic hope of a restored temple, okay, and the return of the presence of God. In fact, chapter 40 through 48 is all about this, the restoration of the temple, the reconstruction of the temple, especially in chapter 43, the glory of God is seen to return to the temple, the presence of the Lord comes back. So they're all excited about this second temple, and you still hear people who are excited about this second temple. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Some people are still expecting these promises to be fulfilled. However, this is the sad thing. You guys know Nehemiah and Ezra. When they reconstructed the second temple, it was a huge disappointment. It was a like they were devastated. Why? Because the glory of the Lord didn't come back. In fact, you read Haggai chapter 2 verse 3. It says, guys, you, you guys remember the former glory of the last temple? Is this like nothing to you? Like he's like, this is so not even in comparison to the original temple because the glory didn't come back. Okay? So this was a huge devastating disappointment to Israel. So much so that, like I said earlier, they thought this is the time of the quenched spirit. The Holy Spirit left. Now we're without the spirit. And then you don't see any books in the Bible anymore because no more prophets, no more prophetic voice in length. The Spirit's not here. Okay? Now, if you're interested, I give a whole series on, or sermon rather, on the intertestamental period, the time of the quenched spirit on October 23rd, the time of God's rule is at hand. Because I realize there's, that's a huge topic and I don't have time to go into it. I just want to advertise in case you're interested, because that intertestamental period is so important because every New Testament writer is so influenced by that period because that was the common understanding that Israel had before Christ came. That was the framework Paul worked from. That was the framework even Jesus worked from. That's his language, kingdom of God, comes from that period. But what I want to do is show you. Remember I showed you this earlier, this two-age idea? This age and age to come came from that period. That was their eschatology. No spirit, evil sin. This is God, uh, this is Satan's age, but God's going to come on the day of the Lord, overtake Satan, the kingdom of God will come. No more evil, no more sin, no more sickness, no more disease, and his Messiah is going to usher it in with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So you see... The, this perspective became thoroughgoing in later Jewish expectations on the basis of those prophecies I showed you, but also Joel 2, 28 to 30. This became a totally eschatological, meaning this is going to happen on the day of the Lord. Okay, look at this. He says, and afterwards, what's going to happen? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, because the spirit's back. Your old men will dream dreams, young men see visions. On my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. That became the evidence. Okay, the day of the Lord meant the Holy Spirit is being poured out, so that's the evidence the day of the Lord came. So from the Jewish heritage, the Christians, the early Christians understood that the spirit was part of this promise of the future. You see how integral this is? It became totally connected with the day of the Lord. It became totally connected with the new covenant. It became totally connected with the kingdom of God. It became totally connected to all these things. And, and like I said, Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave this eschatological cast to these promises. So all these became, on the day of the Lord, this is going to happen. I'm going to give you this new covenant. The Spirit's going to be put in your heart. You're going to follow my laws and decrees. It's not going to be like the old covenant. So all of these promises 
that I gave you, they were expecting to be fulfilled on the day of the Lord. And the gift of the Spirit was the crowning evidence that God's end time promises are being fulfilled. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, fire, wind, tongues, and people are perplexed. They're like, what is going on? Are they drunk? And then what does Peter say? In verse 15 through 18, he says, These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, you see that? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, yada, yada, yada. Verse 18, even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. Why did he quote that? Because they all knew the Israelites who were there that day. That meant the kingdom of God is happening in our sight. That promise we've been waiting for hundreds of years to be fulfilled, the Joel prophecy, is happening in our midst. What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be... 3,000 people get saved. Why? This cut them to the heart. They're like, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God is here. And we missed it. We got to get right with God because the Holy Spirit's back. That means all these promises we were waiting for, the new covenant are happening in our midst. The last days are happening now. What do I need to do to be saved? So you see how that was so influential on their understanding. The significance of the Spirit coming back was so crucial. Because that's what they were all expecting. The new covenant to be uh, defined by. So the gift of the outpouring Spirit meant the Messianic age or the kingdom of God had already arrived in their midst. The Spirit was both the certain evidence that the future dawned and the absolute guarantee of its final consummation. In other words, that's why he says it's the first fruits. It's the first fruits of the final consummation. And it's just a matter of time before Jesus comes back and we're all raised from the dead. That's the finalization of it. Okay, and this is why the Spirit's so crucial to the early church's understanding. So the coming of the Spirit, that's why it's so significant. You hear that, right? The day of Pentecost was the birth of the church. Why? Because that's the birth of the new covenant, because the Spirit came back. And now we're the people of God. We're the people of the presence. The Holy Spirit's dwelling in our midst now, because it's fulfilling all these Old Testament prophetic promises about the Spirit coming back. And it especially meant, number one, that God had ushered in the new covenant, and number two, that God had renewed the lost presence of God to his people. Now I want to end by showing you how influential this was on the New Testament writers. I'm going to juxtapose these old promises and show you how Paul quotes them and alludes to them all throughout the New Testament when he's talking about the new covenant. He's alluding to these scriptures I showed you. And it's always about the Holy Spirit. Okay? Remember I asked the question? What does he mean in Ephesians 1.14 by the promised Holy Spirit? Those are the promises that he was referring to. Okay? So when he says the promised Holy Spirit guaranteeing what's to come, he's saying, hey, this is the fulfillment of your Jewish expectations of the Spirit coming back. And the early church's understanding of the new covenant was highly influenced by these scriptures that I just showed you. Just look at this. So here's the verse you'll recognize. is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. What does God say? He will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants. And you remember, right? Look at what Paul says in Romans 2.29. He's talking about the new covenant now. He says, no, a, a person is a Jew who's one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. You see that? He's, at, he's combining that with the Ezekiel prophecy about the Spirit being put in your heart. Not by the written code. So he's distinguishing the new covenant, the new covenant of spirit, from the old covenant. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. I'm going to show, if you skip to the next slide, I already kind of said that. Ezekiel 36, now look at Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us 
He has set a seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. He's using the exact same language in Greek as used in the Septuagint that I'll put my spirit into you. Paul's essentially quoting that. But look at this, just a couple chapters later, 2 Corinthians 3. Paul makes the, the whole chapter is actually about this. But he makes the point that the Old Covenant was written in stone, symbolizing their stony hearts of the people whom it came. And the New Covenant is written on the heart by the Spirit. Now I'm going to just read some of this chapter. Okay, it's chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are, are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry. Look at this. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's using the language of Ezekiel. Then he goes on. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Look at this. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. The new covenant talked by Jeremiah. Look at how he defines the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. He actually defines the new covenant as the covenant of the spirit. Because of all these promises they're waiting for to be fulfilled. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Then he goes on to distinguish the two. I'm not going to go through the whole chapter. I just want to show you just a couple verses. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could no longer steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory as it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? That's how you define Remember, the New Covenant. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious... How much more glorious the ministry that brings righteousness. Then in verse 15, even to this day when Moses is read, it covers their hearts. Talking about their stony hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes to the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit's transforming us into his glory. The Spirit's bringing righteousness that the law couldn't bring because it didn't have the Spirit. It's all about the ministry of the Spirit in the new covenant. You see how influenced Paul was from all these scriptures I showed you, right? So it's the purpose and the intent of the law is now being fulfilled in the new covenant by the Spirit. And the Spirit lives in us, affecting the righteousness of God. He makes us righteous. He produces God's character in us. The fruit of the Spirit is all about that. Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. Okay? So he came to do what the law couldn't do because it didn't have the law, or it didn't have the Spirit to produce that righteousness. So the Spirit is the key to the new covenant and the end of law observance. There's a bunch of scriptures on that. I'll just show you one. Romans 7, 6. But now, present tense... By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. That's the defining characteristic of the new covenant. Okay, so the outpouring of the Spirit meant that God had fulfilled his promise to dwell once again in among his people. Above everything else, the fulfillment of the new covenant, the Spirit marked of the return of the lost presence of God. And that's why I went over that history to show you the significance of that. The temple imagery is especially significant in this regard because now the temple is the church. We're the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies about the restoration of the second temple because the Spirit's now living in our midst, the place of God's presence. I'm just going to quickly show you three scriptures and then end on this because this is so important. We are called, as the New Covenant Church, the beat of the people, the presence, the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys that temple, creates division in the church, causes it to be they were arguing over leaders and being divisive, He says, God will destroy that person because the temple is so important. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Because we're the people of the presence now. 
2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. We're the people of God now. We're the people of the presence. And that's what defines us. It's the only thing that defines us in the new covenant. Do you have the Holy Spirit or not? It's the only defining characteristic of whether you're saved or not. And I'm going to show you that in the future. Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in, in him, you two are being built together, becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in sum, the spirit coming back in Acts 2 is the fulfillment of the new covenant promises and the renewal of the lost presence of God. That's why the Holy Spirit is so crucial in New Covenant understanding. So crucial. And it's a tragedy that we've relegated him to the periphery and don't even hardly talk about him most of the time in the Western church, at least. In theology and in the church, practically. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what defines us as the church. We are the alternative to all the pagan idolatry that's happening in our city. We are God's temple. We're supposed to be that alternative to the world, showing people what heaven is like here and now in the present evil age by the Spirit. This is our main calling. This is the purpose we have as the people of God, to be a people of his presence. It's an crucial thing. It's not something we can choose to do or not. We are called to be the people of his presence, a people where God dwells by his spirit. And you can see, I hope by now, why this eschatological framework I spend all day talking about <laughs> is so crucial to understanding not only the new covenant, but salvation in Christ. I'll get to that in the future, why that's so important, all this to understand that and what it means to be the people of God. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And, of course, Christ is the central matter, okay? <laughs> I just always have to say that because the Spirit is, this series is on the Spirit, so we're emphasizing the Spirit. But, of course, Christ is the central matter of our faith, and I just want to make sure I say that. All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to eat some soup. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Father, we just thank you so much for your presence. We thank you, God, for the privilege and honor it is that we get to be the people of your presence, that we're called to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And help us to learn and know what it is. The significance of the fact that your spirit came, ushered in a brand new era, a brand new kingdom, that we are called to live by your spirit as people of the future, eschatological kingdom of God, here and now in the present evil age, showing people how good heaven is. That we're called to be a colony of heaven here on earth, Lord, and help us to be that temple, the alternative to the rest of the pagan idolatry that's happening all around us. That people would come and see us and say, oh my goodness, the living God is in their midst. I want what they got. Lord, help us to preach and to know what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand, that we would demonstrate your kingdom by healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, showing people your goodness. And Lord, help us understand and get back to the early church's uh, understanding of your end time perspective, that we are living the life of heaven in the future now in the present tense, and that we have the honor and privilege of showing people what heaven is like through your spirit. Help us to live by your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right.